Cody out of Western Australia and uh, Freddie Wilde, of course, stuck in the UK in the ever-going soap opera that is the lockdown situation around the world. Gentlemen, hello and welcome. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit more and going a little bit more in-depth into franchise T20 cricket around the world and the various leagues. Freddie, how are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good, thanks, Bish. Um, as you said, I think things are um, getting a little crazy over here. Um, lockdown is still going on, and, and as I'm sure um, you're aware, the political ups and downs are <laughs> putting everyone through it. But um, yeah, th things are beginning to look up in terms of cases and, and deaths, and, and, and hopefully um, we're, we're getting closer to some easing of the restrictions um, on our daily lives, but um, yeah, the, the soap opera is in full flow, as you said. Yeah, good day, Bish. Good day, Freddie. And uh, yeah, th things are pretty good here, apart from the fact that winter is just starting to close in on us, on us here in Australia. So, getting some uh, pretty heavy rain and and wind. But yeah, that's if that's the worst of our problems, we're uh, we're pretty happy with that. Right, so an important time coming up for you as the weather cools. Uh, let's get straight into it because I've been reading this week and just coming off of our podcast last week, I think Freddie was Freddie initiated a point as to where cricket may go, what format will have the spotlight shone upon it at the restart, and he had intimated that franchise cricket might be might have a greater focus of T Twenty cricket. So. Today, we're going to discuss the whole concept of nation versus nation and franchise cricket. Um, how do we see the standard of international T20 cricket and franchise cricket as a starting point? Yeah, look, I, uh, I think it's an interesting debate, which we'll, we'll get into. That's the, the international T20 cricket versus the franchise uh, model. There's no question, I think we would all agree that IPL is the big daddy of franchise cricket. It is the it is the the format that everyone wants to play in, everyone wants to be involved in, and there's no question it is of the highest standard. Would you agree with that, Freddie? Yeah, completely, completely. And that there are many reasons for that, um, which we'll get stuck into, but, but probably most obviously is just simply wealth. Um, we will we'll get stuck into these uh, these uh, the different factors in a little more detail. But the IPL, as we know, is the richest league. Um, it's the league that can pay its players the most. It's created a, essentially a de facto window in the international calendar. Um, and as a result, it produces a very high standard of T20 cricket. And, and you touched on their moods, an interesting debate in terms of how that, you know, how it balances out against international cricket. And obviously, traditionally, Cricket has been a game that has been based around nation v nation contests, um, be it tests or ODIs. And obviously, the advent of T20 cricket in 2003 and the, the rise of domestic leagues and the sort of increased focus and increased money that have been put into them has seen the domestic format of T20 rise. Um, and quite how it matches up against international cricket is a very interesting debate. And obviously the three of us moves as a coach, Bish, working as a commentator and myself as an analyst have seen these leagues from very different perspectives. And I'm sure I've got some interesting insights as to how we think they all sort of fit together on a hierarchy. And I think the, the, the one other thing I want to just add to the IPL in particular is that what it has done, it's, it's generated enormous amount of revenue outside of the usual streams that would come from a cricket board. You've got these independent, wealthy business people in the community that have suddenly aligned themselves with the game uh, and the vehicle through franchise cricket in the IPL. And not every league has this vehicle because big bash teams aren't for sale. They're all owned by uh, Cricket Australia. But the IPL has generated an enormous amount of revenue outside of its normal uh, structure that it would do any other normal way. So, okay, so so the IPL is a no-brainer because of its its riches, its wealth, the magnitude of overseas players of quality, um, the eyeballs on it. Number one cannot be contested. What is then the significance of the other T20 leagues around the world? You've got the CPL. You you talked about the BBL, the BPL, um, the T20 Blast. 
Freddie, dive into to, first before I go back to Tom. What is the significance of each of these leagues in these different territories? Yeah, sure. Well, it's, well, firstly, the significance for them from a from the board's perspective is, and and this is one that ties into what we were talking about last week in terms of um, there being a focus on franchise cricket. Um, you know, in in the COVID era, is that boards are able to be self-sufficient or more self-sufficient as a result of these domestic leagues. Historically, again, as I said before, nation v nation contests meant that um, you know England will rely on playing against South Africa or playing against West Indies, or India will rely on playing Sri Lanka, and these nations need other nations to play, have something to play against so they can make some money. Now, obviously, the, the rise of the IPL triggered a growth in domestic T20 competitions, and that fundamentally changed the economics of the sport because suddenly uh, national boards were able to basically raise revenue through um, their own domestic competition, and they didn't have to rely on another nation to do that. So from an administrative perspective, they're very, um, they're very significant. They've massively changed the way the game is run. Um, and then in terms of how um, to sort of slightly move away from the administration side of things to move on to the standard of cricket um, produced by the different leagues, there are a number of different factors that influence the standard of cricket. Um, there are six broadly that I'll just run through. And then they're, they're, they're ones that we will touch on um, in this discussion. Firstly, and most importantly, um, some T20 competitions, such as England's in uh, the T20 Blast in England, um, it's based on the existing first-class structure. These are teams that play not only T20 cricket, but first-class cricket and List A cricket. So their contracts, the contracts that they sign with players, um, they'll be building a list of players that play across all three formats. That is different to, for example, PSL, the CPL, the BPL and the IPL, um, where these teams are specifically um, built to play T20 cricket and they will focus all their energy onto T20 players, T20 coaches, um, and, and, and that just simple difference there puts those sides, the ones who are T20 specialists, at a slight advantage. Um, the second thing to, to take consideration of is the ownership structure of the teams. Um, teams in uh, these newer competitions like the IPL again, the PSL, the CPL, the BPL, they are privately owned. Um, that's to say that you know, businessmen and wealthy um, investors pour money into the sides and they are, that money is then used to pay players as opposed to uh, in England or in New Zealand, um, the teams are run by or funded and in Australia funded more centrally by the board um, and as a result have less money to pay players. Then the next factor, which is rather obvious, I suppose, is the quality of the domestic talent pool. Um, somewhere like Sri Lanka, for example, has got far fewer domestic players available to call on than somewhere like India, where it's obviously cricket is a huge, huge thing. There's a billion people in the country um, and the talent pool there is vast and very deep. Um, then over the domestic talent pool is supplemented by overseas players, obviously, um, in the IPL, um, CPL, PSL and BPL. There are four overseas players. The more overseas players you can sign, um, obviously, the better the standard is. You can supplement and fill gaps with overseas players. In the T20 Blast, um, you're only allowed two overseas players. Um, and in the Big Bash, you're only allowed two as well. Um, another key factor um, in all of this is the number of teams that are in each league. So um, historically, um, the T20 Blast was the first T20 competition, obviously, way back in 2003, based on the existing 18-county structure. Um, that requires a far larger number of players to be spread amongst those 18 teams. So obviously what we're talking about with regards to the domestic and overseas talent pools, um, the fewer the number of teams there are, um, the less thinly spread the players have to be. And so that's why the CPL and the PSL enjoy an advantage from a standard perspective, because there are only six teams in those leagues, eight in the BPL, eight in the Big Bash, eight in the IPL. Um, the fewer the number of teams, generally the higher the standard. And then finally, um, the method in which players are contracted, which I sort of touched on um, with, with regards to English, the English competition, players having to be contracted across various formats. Um, the advent of auction and drafts in these other leagues allow teams to plug gaps. Um, so, for example, if you're a side heading into an auction, you know you've got a particular shortcoming in spin bowling, then you can clearly prioritise that in a way that under the existing sort of traditional contract structure can be a little more difficult. 
Um, so they're, they're the broad um, factors, I guess, that influence the different standards. And it's very important to acknowledge that all the different leagues around the world have different rules and regulations with regards to the number of players, as I said, the number of overseas players allowed, and also um, the, the sort of whether there's an international window. The IPL enjoys basically free reign over the players it can sign, apart from, it should be said, Pakistanis, um, due to political differences there. Um, but other leagues are having to sort of pick and choose their way through the international schedule and see who's available. Um, and that's another key factor in influencing which overseas players can be signed. So I've gone on there quite a bit, but it's important, I suppose, just to understand those key factors that shape uh, the standard of cricket that is played. My God, I felt I was listening to my university professor there for a minute. <laughs> very, very deep, Freddie. It was rather interesting. Don't, don't feel that you went on too long. That was, that was fascinating uh, because you've outlined those six characteristics and criteria, and you can see there for me why, say, the IPL, for obvious reasons, is on top and the specificity about not having to contract Tom as a coach and not having to, to play around with, let's say, players from a first-class system or a 50-over system. You're strictly concentrating on contracting T20 specialists must be such an ease for a coach. Yeah, well, there's some huge advantages with the IPL. Um, one being, obviously, you've got access to the best players in the world. There's no clashes, particularly now that England, over the recent years, have released their talent pool as well. So your, your Joss Butlers and your Ben Stokes of the world um, are available for um, selection out of the auction. Uh, so you think it's a de facto window for the IPL? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's a, a huge factor because you've got the cream of the crop. You've got the best cricketers in the world um, available to you. You've also got uh, access, which no other franchise has this access, of recruiting not just four overseas players. That's the, that's the number you, you're allowed to have on the field of play. You can have eight in your, on your books. So most franchises have between 22 and 25 uh, contracted players, and every franchise will have eight overseas players amongst that 22 to 25. So that allows you to recruit through your auction process um, a balance of overseas players that fit every situation. Uh, not only you get cover for your fast bowler or cover for your spin bowler or cover for your opening bat, you've also got particular uh, signings which allows you to match up according to who you play against or what conditions you're playing in. So you can you can really go into some you know specific detail, and that's where you know your work along someone like a Freddie that has that expertise is really important in your preparation for auctions where you go into that great detail and work out exactly one what type of cricket you want to play and how are you going to be consistently successful with number one owning your own home ground and making that a fortress and two being flexible enough to be good enough to be um, effective away from home in those various conditions. So when we filter down, I think it's important we, we put the IPL as a flag bearer for all of these leagues. Now, there are disadvantages that, that I see. For example, Moods, you've been involved intricately in the CPL. The availability of the selection of overseas players, in contrast, not as much buying power. <clears throat> there isn't a, a de facto window internationally for the CPL or the PSL or the T20 Blast or, or many of these other leagues. So the quality and number of overseas players available, there's a scramble. It's not that it's poor quality, but it's not as great as the IPL have with that window. So the talent is, is not spread around as generously. So there are disadvantages to that uh, when, when we go into that, Freddie. Yeah, completely. And I, I mean, I, I suppose that that's where the, you know, the, when exactly the league happens um, from a calendar standpoint in the year um, is a factor. And the CPL, I think, is a little bit more at an advantage when it is played, which is sort of July, August, um, when there are fewer, um, fewer other, you know, it clashes with fewer seasons, I suppose. So they have access to a, to a slightly better 
overseas players than say the Big Bash, which is an interesting comparison actually, because not only does the Big Bash being played in December and January clash with more um, with more season, but it also recently um, clashes with the Bangladesh Premier League. So that's a really interesting example there, where we're seeing two T20 leagues go up against one another. And what we've seen, and this taps into a lot of the points that I made when I was running through the factors that influence standards, is that the Bangladesh Premier League, with its privately owned teams, has more money to spend than the Big Bash, um, which the teams are centrally funded by Cricket Australia. Now, Cricket Australia are a wealthy board, but they don't pour as much money uh, from a salary perspective into the league as the BPL does. Now, the BPL also has access to four overseas players per starting 11 and eight per squad. And the quality of the BPL overseas players and moves, you'll be well placed to talk about this in particular, given your experience coaching there, has been absolutely phenomenal in recent years. And, and, and that's maybe particularly important for the Bangladesh League because the domestic talent pool is maybe not quite as high as, say, in Pakistan or in the Caribbean. Um, but the overseas players in the BPL are quite possibly the second best cast of overseas players anywhere in the world. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I'd agree with that. Um, the Bangladesh Premier League does boast exceptional overseas talent. Um, the, the other thing to take into consideration is not only the money um, side of it that Bangladesh has available because of the private ownership against your... your um, uh, your big bash it's the time frame of the tournament and that's that's where the cpl and the bangladesh premier league is an attractive one for overseas players because it it carries over a window between 35 to 40 days where you're talking uh, the big bash it goes over not only does it go over christmas but it goes over nearly 60 days if you're going all the way through to the end and from an overseas gun for hire He's weighing up not only the financial benefits, but he's also weighing up the time away from home. And then the, the disadvantage the Australian League has, the, Bangla, uh, the, the, the Big Bash has, is that it brings in Christmas and New Year. And that is a significant time for many uh, people around family and friends and all those types of things. So it, it, it's got an enormous headwinds, really, uh, the Big Bash, because of the competition and also because of the, the, the time frame that it uh, that spans over. Yeah, Shane Watson wrote an interesting article, didn't he, about that where he said that that last Big Bash was so long that school had reopened or something to that extent and the kids weren't able to come. The disposable income of families was only enough in many cases <clears throat> to attend a certain number of games. That was doubled. So he felt all of those factors, not to mention the miking up of players, which Shane Watson hates, by the way, and I thought he did it so well, uh, were factors that uh, impacted the BBL. So something that he has advised them to, to look forward to change in the upcoming edition. And, and, and it's interesting that I think Watson chose to play in the BBL over the Big Bash a couple of seasons back. Um, before um, I think he retired, he retired from the Big Bash essentially and chose to play in the BPL, which you know is is a sad state of affairs for, for, for Korea Australia. He's one of the quite possibly T Australia's greatest ever T20 player, um, and for him to be turning his back on on the B on the BBL for the BPL, um, it, it probably speaks to quite a few of the problems that the league has got. Um, and it's interesting now, um, you know, the Big Bash is, is having to look at ways of trying to compete with the BPL. Ideally, I think, for the global calendar, they would both find a spot separate to one another where they aren't clashing with each other. And you can have the Big Bash and then have the BPL. And I think not too, uh, in the not too distant past, that was the case. One led on to the other. But if they are going to continue going against one another, and, and it's completely up to the Bangladesh Cricket Board when it wants to stage its own league, and if it wants to stage it there, then you know fine, that, that should that should be fine. Um, the Cricket Australia is going to have to find ways of competing, and I think there have been discussions about increasing the number of overseas players from two to maybe three or possibly four, um, and also from Cricket Australia perhaps giving a little bit more um, money to the sides to pay. For the you know the star players and last season we saw Ab de Villiers who was another player the year before who chose to play in the Bangladesh League actually come and play in the Big Bash but he only chose to play in the Big Bash for a handful of games and as Mood said 
given the Christmas mm. New Year clash, I think he opted, I think he joined just after the New Year period. So he said, you know, as he can, as, as, as one of the best players in the world, I, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to come after the Christmas period. And that's what he did do. But obviously the league itself would much rather have De Villiers for the whole thing. That, that's, that's where the leagues, I feel, around the world have got to be very careful not to make um, a joke of their, their franchise tournament. And I'm not saying that uh, the Big Bash have done that, but I just think the, the other point is, one, you want your players available, your star players available from the start to the finish. And that's the huge advantage IPL has because the money that uh, that is on the table and the availability of the players in that window. And the other thing, which is the point you made, Bish, about what Shane Watson said about the, the gimmick of miking up players and two or three players on the ground all miked up to different broadcasters and what have you. I think that we must always remember the game itself has to be the hero, not the entertainment yeah. Yeah. outside the game. It, it, the entertainment with regards to the fireworks and the dancing and the, you know, the whistle blowing or whatever it is, is very important part of it. It's the entertainment off the field, but it can never detract or the focus can't be taken away from the quality of the game itself out in the middle. And I think that that balance at times has been lost. I think Australia have absolutely nailed their product off the field, but I think the product on the field has been in decline over the last few years, and that needs to be addressed. They've certainly got a successful product, but the game itself has suffered. So in, in, in building off of that, and, and Professor Wild, I'll come back to you in a little <laughs> while from now, the talent pool then, let, let's tie in everything because I'm looking, for example, at Pakistan, the number of faster bowlers, seam bowlers that they seem to produce less batsmen of international quality through their PSL, but outstanding seam bowlers and a few spinners. Um, India, obviously, through the IPL, have had the strengths of producing excellent batters quality spinners, and even a few seam bowlers in there. The CPL, um, we've seen good domestic pools, I would think. I, I don't know if there's a, a disagreement with that, but I think that given the way West Indians have historically, and I've touched on this before, I think, in a podcast, where the, the culture, uh, the way of life in the Caribbean, ever since you're going back to the early 20th century, a very powerful, athletic, dynamic people uh, mostly, you've had your, your outliers in every team, athletic ability. Players have now found the freedom of expression to express that in the T20 format. So we're finding good power hitters in the domestic pool. We've seen good fast bowlers moves, as, as we can see with O'Shane Thomas, or wrong players coming through in Kimo Paul. But there's an entertainment side that we found as well. Have we found the balance right? We saw uh, Chadwick Walton get into it with Keswick Williams signing the notebook. So there's an entertainment side there that has been taken up. You know, Bish, I think I think the West Indians can get away with what they like because <laughs> that they they seem to be the natural entertainers, and right. they always have been. I take myself back to my childhood, and Freddie wasn't born, but World Series cricket, Kerry Packer days, the West Indies, when they came out to Australia and played against Australia and we had the World Eleven, the, the West Indians were, without even it being forced, and this was before cricket was even seen as entertainment, it was seen as just a, a sport that we all admired and watched, the West Indians would naturally be the entertainers. And I think, to get to your point, I think the CPL has found that balance. I think the the, the characters uh, that are naturally that way inclined and natural entertainers have the freedom to entertain, but they're accountable for their performances. Right. There's no doubt about that. You know, you you can't get away with, you know, all show uh, and, and and little you know little outcome. They've got to they've got to back up that sort of that flair, and the West Indians do it so well. And I think that that's a big reason why you know, we've sort of put the IPL, I think, rightly at the top. And, and if we're going to sort of try and discuss 
you know, what what league is next and in what order they come. I think one thing that the CPL has over the Pakistan, over the PSL and the BBL, which I think we can probably say are on possibly the BPL, who are probably the ones who are next in sort of line. Um, what the Caribbean League has is the domestic, I think probably the best domestic talent pool, or certainly the the the... The best of the players in the Caribbean are very, very good. And they're the players who play around the world. Um, you know, your Gales, Narines, Russells, Pollards, um, even now guys coming through, you know, the new generation, the likes of Lewis, Haran, um, Fabian Allen. These guys are fantastic T20 players. And Bish, you touched on it. It's something that comes sort of culturally very naturally to these guys. They are dynamic, hard-hitting players, well-suited to T20. And I think as a result, there's some very good Caribbean players who would normally be top dollar picks as overseas players who can play in the CPL as local players. Mm. And then tying into that, I think the CPL probably enjoys um, the best access to overseas players. Whilst the, they come and go, um, I think that their their position in the calendar, um, clashing only really with the English season, allows them to have some pretty good access to overseas players too. We've seen some really good overseas players there over the years, just thinking... Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Trimbrago Knight Riders a few years ago would have McCullum, Lynn, and obviously then the Rhine, who's a local player and at the top of their order. And that, that's, you know, that's an IPL standard top order. And for me, that's why I think the CPL is coming. It feels like it comes around second after the IPL. The, the other big point with that, Freddie, is a six-team tournament. Yeah. It's a six-team tournament where you, you have got a very condensed, so all that talent you're talking about, Domestic and overseas talent is in a very small, tightly fit, fitted tournament. Yeah, that, that, that was the other point that I was going to come to. So you're, you're, you're filling those gaps. You've got four overseas players possible per team. But when you've got those wonderful finishers, those spin bowlers, Freddie, that you talked about, a few quality seamers, then you just clog the gaps. And comparing that to the T20 Blast, which has, what, 18 teams, just get into the general uh, sort of weakness, so to speak. Yeah, and just to give you an interesting, this, this kind of sums up, I suppose, the difference between or the importance of the number of teams. Um, when you combine the number of teams that are in each league and the number of overseas players that are allowed, you can then essentially say how many domestic players are needed in each league to fill the starting 11s of those sides. So in the CPL, there are six teams four overseas players per team means you only need 42 local players to fill the to fill the six sides um to to have the league in the t20 blast as you said 18 teams only two overseas players you need 164 domestic players so the 164th best player in england is getting a contract and is playing in the t20 blast the 42nd best player in the cpl or domestic player is the worst player in that tournament, sort of, you know, to, to extend that logic. And that just shows there how important the number of teams are. Um, and for, yeah, that, that's probably the most important, I would say, factor amongst these leagues. They're all, you know, we're talking here amongst test playing nations. Um, the number of teams is absolutely pivotal. And the CPL requires fewer local players than any other league. Um, and, and the PSL uh, alongside it as well. The, the, the other the point just with regards to the blast in the UK, Freddie, is that that's why the 100 is so, so important to their game because it's going to give them a, a, a tournament that's going to be right up there pushing next to the IPL. It will never beat the IPL. The IPL can't be beaten at this stage. You know, you never say never, but it certainly looks well and truly miles ahead. But... From a coaching perspective, the spin-off of having a tournament of that calibre is the education that it lends to the domestic game and the players benefit enormously. I've seen over the cycle of the IPL and I've been fortunate enough to be involved with it right from the get-go and the development of the domestic Indian player from the beginning of the IPL to today is... You can't measure it. It's immeasurable, the, the, the improvement, you know, from a professionalism point of view, from a technical point of view, from a tactical point of view. Just the whole skill and, and physical side 
has just gone through the roof. And that's why Indian cricket has not only financially gone through the roof, but their game itself has gone to a height that's unimaginable. You know, the, the growth of their game and the depth of the quality that they've got on offer. I think it's worth saying as well, we've got at Crickviz, we've got a metric which essentially ranks these leagues um, by standard. And, and when you look across it on a year-by-year basis as well, it's really interesting to see how the IPL has become significantly better over time with each year that's gone by. I think early on in the first few years, um, you know, there were times when there were a few domestic players who you thought, who is this guy? And, and, and you know, he, he would get, you know, someone like Andrew Simons, you know, one of the early greats of T20 cricket would get stuck into him. Nowadays, it's harder. You see that happen a lot less often. And that, that taps into what you're saying, Moods. The quality of the domestic talent pool has been lifted up. And I think it's, you know, it's, it, you can't deny that that's been a, a product of the fact that the IPL is there and mixing all these players and coaches together. And now we get to the point where, you know, there are very, there are lots of very good Indian players. And that's why the last three standard, last three years of the IPL, according to our measure, have been the highest standards ever of the competition. And it's getting better every year. I wonder how much of that, though, just on the side, is down to the scouting, uh, down to uh, little academies sprouting in India, and scouting in Pakistan as well. The PSL franchises have been notable for going into the rural areas, the outskirts, and finding players. The, the, P- the, the IPL have done that quite well. I think one of the franchises started an academy recently yeah, as well yeah. to bring the KKR as you said, yeah. Freddie, to bring those players through. That must be, if we look around at the other leagues, how significant would that be to start up in leagues? And Freddie, I just want to tease because at the end of this, we're going to pick our top three franchises in terms of order. So stick around for that. That'll be some chaos. <laughs> I think the uh, I think the academy uh, side of thing does play a part, but I don't think it's the most significant part, um, Bish, in that, At the end of the day, you may, in your franchise academy, develop some talent, but you can only access that talent through the auction process. So you may spend three years developing this young leg spinner from Kolkata, you know, the outskirts of Kolkata, and every single cricketer worth their, you know, worth their, you know, Sol is going to know exactly who that person is when it comes to the auction and every team will be targeting that particular player. So that, that, that is an important part of it. But I think the, the biggest shift I've seen is just the professionalism around uh, the recruitment process. And I'll use the word accountability. You know, the early years, it was a mixture of, is this a party or is this a cricket tournament? Yeah, and correct. It, it had that real blend of this is amazing, it's it's off the charts, but is it is, is it nearly, have we got nearly the balance wrong from what's happening off field to what's happening on the field? And I think over, certainly over the, the last five to seven years, we've seen a significant shift of, of franchises recognising that I want to win this. I, I, I want to be... Uh, do everything in my powers to make sure that I build a team that gives us every chance to win. So we need to be smart around recruitment. We need to be smart around support staff. We need to be smart around how we're making sure we're developing a winning culture. And it's interesting yeah. because you know you sort of talk there about the is it a party or is it a cricket tournament? This is what I think makes the debate particularly complex nowadays. If, you know, talking to someone who maybe doesn't follow T20 cricket particularly closely, I think there is that feeling still that pervades thinking about the game or T20 cricket generally, that is that it is a bit of a laugh. And whilst that has begun to change, I think people are accepting that it has changed. And most notably, um, as the World Cups themselves become more serious, I think your average fan sort of begins to recognise that the format itself has matured a lot. Um but moods, what you're saying is obviously completely right. Is that actually, you know, at a domestic level in the, you know, these tournaments which popped up and these teams that didn't exist 15 years ago have now become very, very serious entities. Um, not only um, serious, just full stop, but they're comparable and perhaps even better, or producing a better standard of, of cricket than international sides. And, that, and that's the thing that um, I think greats 
potentially with quite a few sort of purists and traditionalists who think, oh, you know, well, how, how can how can the standard of this pop-up city-based league possibly challenge, you know, the international game, which has for so long been held up as sort of the, the pillar of cricket? But 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 there are, as you said, the, the many reasons you, you you touched on there: accountability, money, um, investment, pro, you know, just, just simply specialising in T20. You know, when you're coaching at um, when you've coached at Sunrises in the past, you're building a backroom staff specifically t- to play T20 cricket. England, for example, now whilst there are some, they have coaches that come and go who maybe are more um, orientated towards white and red ball, are building a backroom staff that are there to, to, to take them through the year in many different formats. And that's a huge difference, I think. Yeah, there's no doubt. You have a conversation with a coach who's a T20 specialist coach. Uh, I'm not talking just head coach. I'm talking about a specialist coach, whether it be a bowling coach, a fielding coach or a batting coach. And you have a conversation with a coach that's in a mainstream system that's part of a first-class setup, or even some of the international setups. The 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 opinions of a franchise coach is far broader, and they have a far more sort of open mind to exploring, you know, how one can get better uh, against the one that's in the mainstream system because they're having to cater for many different formats and and cater for many different situations where you you're in a you're in a franchise bubble for you know IPL can be 2 months and the focus is 100% in making sure that your T20 game and everything around your T20 game whether it be preparation whether it be match day is not compromised but in other, the reality is, in other situations, in other cricketing environments, you're, comp- you're constantly compromised by players having to go back to domestic, to, you know, domestic situations, to a four-day game, a, a 50-over game. It may be a domestic 20-over game that they're suddenly appearing in. So you're, you're constantly moving. Your, your talent is constantly moving through different phases that the game presents. And then just, just one point as well, Bish, before you come in. And you mentioned it earlier, Moods, and I may well not have been born when World Series cricket was played. But <laughs> I do. We're about, I, about five years I, ago, Freddie. I, I have done. I have done some reading on it before, and I understand that the, the you know, the way that a lot of players from around the world came together. Um, a lot of players said that that standard of cricket was amongst the highest they ever played. Mm. And that, I think, taps back into what we're talking about with the IPL. Again, you throw together all the world's best players. And, you know, it doesn't matter that these, that the, these, uh, the Kolkata Knight Riders didn't exist in 2007. These are professional cricket players who are going to be playing at a high intensity. And as a result, they're going to produce a really high standard of cricket. And I think exactly the same thing that happened with World Series cricket that's happened at, at domestic T20 competitions. This is producing a very high standard of cricket simply because you're throwing together a lot of good players. Oh. Okay, then building off of that then, and we, we're restricted with time, so we can't delve into everything. All those strengths of franchise cricket. I know that our colleague Simon Dool had an opinion <clears throat> many years ago, and I think, Tom, I'm, I'm hearing it eke out of your personality. Is there still value in bilateral T20 matchups, matchups or matches outside of T20 World Cups? Are you in favour of it or, or not? Well, personally, I'm not. Um, I, I just feel that because the evolution of franchise cricket around the world, every board quite rightly wants to run their own franchise tournament for the reasons that we've touched on. I just think that there's only so many windows available in a year. And I just think at times the international T20 fixtures are compromised because it's a last minute. You will have a couple of games at the end of this test series or we'll have a, you know, a couple of games at the beginning of our ODI series. I think I'd, I'd much rather see that time freed up and the focus on test cricket and ODI cricket being the main focus internationally. Yes, by let's definitely have World Cups in T20 cricket because we want to see who's the best, you know, who is the best performing country. But I think the franchise is playing, you know, an important window, not an important window, play an important role in 
T20 as it is. It's a bit like uh, uh, football, soccer, where, you know, they come together for a World Cup. They don't do anything apart from that. Yes, they may play the odd friendly, but, it, it, you know, that is the main event. I think T20 can do exactly the same. Uh, Freddie, well, I... uh, before, before <laughs> you get in there, Sorry. an advantage, I don't know how sig significant it is, but I have, I've heard and interacted with a number of franchise captains who've talked about the lack of time to build a cohesive unit in franchise cricket versus when you have the international set of the players who are available, you might have your camps, you might have your bonding time going into those international matches. That's just one point on the other side. Freddie, go ahead. Yeah, and I don't disagree completely with what Moods is saying around the sort of football model. I think that that is certainly the direction that we're heading in, um, whereby T20 World Cups are the primary vehicle for international T20 cricket. And I think we're sort of at that point anyway. But what Moods is saying, I think, is that he'd like to see slightly less or maybe none at all of the bilateral fixtures between international sides. And, and I, I disagree with that. I think that essentially... What 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 you're doing there is is freeing up space in the calendar for for Test and ODI cricket, um, what to for, to sort of have greater prominence. For me, I don't see why T20 internationals needs to be the one that's cast by the wayside. Quite often, it's the one which is the most popular. Um, it's certainly the most popular with a lot of broadcasters. Um, and if it means we play slightly less ODI cricket or Test cricket, then for me, then that's that's the way it is. I think that you know ultimately, um, T20 cricket is exceptionally popular. And I think that, that um, you know, if we're going to play, if we can play less ODI cricket to make room for T20 cricket, then I, I'm absolutely fine by that. Quite often we see it move in cycles as well. Um, you know, when the T20 World Cup's coming up, we'll see more T20 cricket played and then it will be a dip off and then there'll be slightly more ODI cricket as it approaches the ODI World Cup. There might be a, a bit more sort of pragmatism, I suppose, around scheduling in that respect. Um, it, but it, Just the other thing I want to add, Freddie, is that the, the, the issue internationally is that so often we see teams international t teams compromise their squads because they're wanting to rest their key players so we're not getting the best players playing for the various countries in that two match or three match series that you're referring to um so i, th I think that's the issue and i think also a point that needs to be considered is particularly now with the environment we're in with what's happened with COVID-19 is that financially boards aren't probably going to be in a position where they can suddenly fly out a half a new team to play in a two-match tournament or a three-match tournament, you know, where, you know, where before that luxury was not even that was not even an issue. You know, it was a case of, yeah, we can fly, fly three more players out to join the, you know, the squad to add to the, the balance of the ODIs, to, to the T20 squad after the ODIs. If, if, but if finances are an issue, which I think you know, you're right, it's a good point, they may well be. I see that the thing that's going to suffer is not necessarily T20 internationals. It will be test matches because they're the ones that at the moment lose boards more money. Um, T20 internationals are generally more popular um, I, I, and certainly with broadcasters, um, I, I see if, they're, if, they're, if we're talking about saving money, then I think there'll be less test matches played rather than um, fewer squads sort of supplemented with players being flown out. I, I see that's the way things will go. But um, yeah, it's, it's it, you know the point is essentially it comes back to the fact that there's a lot of cricket played, and it's trying to sort of work out um, how things fall, and, and particularly um, post COVID. You know, it's something we spoke about last week. Um, you know, the changes and the effects of the virus are probably going to force the board's hands in a way that I think, you know, these changes might have unfolded over the next five to 10 years. And I think now what we might see is that accelerated. Um, and, and, you know, this goes back to what we said last week, but it'll be very interesting to see which things are prioritised. If anything, Freddie, you're very consistent in, in what you spout, uh, because a colleague of yours wrote an article this week, uh, Tim, just building on what you guys talked about, let's let's think about the lower echelons of the international table, not Australia, who, by the way, given the poor performance of the BBL, Australia now the number one T20 team in the world, England, T20 blast, not high up there. They are now very high in the T20 table. So Afghanistan, Ireland, those teams which you guys, God forbid, won't be playing as many test matches 
they, we were saying white ball cricket and maybe specifically T20 cricket has to be the vehicle that finances uh, those countries. That's their cash cow. So in many ways, Tom, I think this is maybe countering your argument as to more maybe T20 internationals rather than less if less test matches are going to be played. Yeah, very true. Um, very true. But I personally believe prior to the the the, the change that we've had, mm-hmm. I've always felt the international right. T20s have been a non-event. Um, the, the Certainly the World Cups have been a major event and they've been wonderful. But I think the, the T20s that we've had on offer have been a, a non-event, which that that's what has formed my opinion. But I agree with the uh, it being a vehicle, a lifeline, if anything, for some of those smaller countries that are trying to, you know, gain their feet again after this uh, horrific virus. Just one comment as well, Bish. You made an excellent point just then about Australia and England's domestic competitions um, being ones that we've sort of talked down. And obviously, they're at an international level, they're doing well. Um, what, what one really interesting factor around the domestic talent pool, which I touched on as, as, a, as a key influencer as to the standard of, of cricket, is whether that international board creates a window for its own tournament. So uh, the CPL, for example, generally, I think not always actually, but the West Indies are not playing at the same time as the CPL is going on. So all the West Indian players are available. The same applies to the IPL, the same applies to the BPL, the same applies to the PSL, the Big Bash and the C20 Blast don't do that. We see, um, I think David Warner hasn't played a Big Bash game since 2013. Um, Mitchell Stark and and Josh Hazelwood and Steve Smith played a couple, I think, uh, or maybe not Stark, but Hazelwood and Smith last year. Um, So we see them coming back a bit more, but that's a massive factor as well. Essentially, Australia and England's most or best players um, are, are generally not available to play in their own competition. Um, and one thing that actually comes back to, just to loop it into other sort of factors, the ownership of those leagues are ones owned by the board themselves. If you're a private investor investing in a league, you would not want to be investing in a league whereby there is another tournament. You know, Australia are also playing parallel to the Big Bash League. If I want to invest in the Melbourne Stars, for example, I want all the players to be available all the time. So you see the teams, the leagues rather, that are privately have private ownership are the leagues whereby the board will then create a window for that and give it sort of high priority and it becomes the main event. Um, interestingly, the 100 um, has sort of gone halfway to that. Um, so the 100, obviously, which is postponed this year, the ECB have poured a lot of effort into that. They're trying to sort of build that up as the big competition. They've not created a window. Um, and you do wonder whether that will influence the standard in a similar way to the Big Bash sort of suffering um, as a result of not having some of the best international players available. So there are a huge multitude of factors that go into producing the, the, the standard of cricket that we then have to try and assess and work out um, where they all fit. A great, great debate for our listeners. Should there be more or less T20 internationals? And you can sort of tweet at Freddie and Tom, leave me out of it. But I think it's a good debate as, <laughs> as we're running out of time and there's so much more that we could have covered. If we move to what those top three leagues are, in our opinion, and, and there are one or two surprises. There's one surprise in there, as far as I'm concerned, with Freddie's analysis at, at Crickviz. I could not believe it. Um, I just want to just draw reference and when we talk about ranking players for selection to national teams, let's assume, Tom, that there were no T20 international bilateral series. So you're looking then at at picking guys out of franchises. The one thing that complicated rankings and stuff for me is that someone like a Glenn Maxwell, who may have done well on certain pitches, but in the IPL may have struggled, and Andrew Russell, who may not have conquered his batting on bouncier pitches, but has done it on slower pitches. Frank, just as an example, how do selectors rank those performances? How do we then rank the leagues based on different balance of performances from different players? Let me hear a top three and why from you guys. Well, I'll, I'll go with just to, to address the, the surprise that you mentioned in our rankings. So we've, we've got a system in Crickviz where we, 
Um, to give you a brief overview of it, it looks at how a player performs in one league and then to another and, and compares players who've performed in multiple leagues and just assesses how their performance changes. And using a, a complex model, which our data scientists have built, that basically produces a ranking. Uh, and the second uh, ranked tournament in that model is the Mazanzi Super League, South Africa's T20 comp. And that is based on just two seasons worth of data. I expect were we to get more, that would slip down slightly. However, there are some lessons there as to why that's so high up and potentially surprisingly so. Um, the, some of the coal pack players were, were permitted back in that competition, uh, boosting the domestic talent pool. There are only six teams permitted in that competition originally. I think they are going to now expand to eight, but only six is, is very few. Um, and they're allowed three overseas players. And generally those overseas players were pretty good quality. So that just goes back to all of the factors we were talking about earlier as to what makes a good T20 league. And that one, uh, the South Africa League, does have a number of those factors. So whilst it was surprising to see it as high as it was, um, I think it probably would still rank pretty well. Um, for me to, to, to just go through my rankings, IPL, as we said, would be the top. I think after that, I would put the CPL. Um, I think for the reasons we said, the domestic talent pool is exceptional. There are six teams. Um, they're good access to overseas players. And I think the CPL has really improved in the last couple of years. You two, having seen it close hand, will be a um, better place than me to see that, say that. But I think the quality of pitches has got better. Um, and I think the, the standard of cricket there has really gone up, uh, particularly for probably yeah, two last two to three seasons. Um, since maybe we've seen TKR emerge as a real force, I think that's dragging the rest of the league with them. And then after that, my third would be the PSL, not far behind the CPL. I think they're very similar um, for very similar reasons, again, with the same number of teams, same number of overseas players. Um, and then after that, that, that's when you get into, I, th I think, you know, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit closer together, but the big bash is probably fighting with the, with the BPL as, as the next one. Um, Australia's domestic talent pool is certainly better than Bangladesh's, but as we said, and as Mood said, the quality of overseas players you get in Bangladesh is, is exceptional. Yeah, look, I'd agree with that listing, to be honest with you, uh, Bish. You know, IPL, CPL, PSL, top three for mm. me, for the for very much the same reasons as, as Freddie's talking about. And just to touch on uh, the, I suppose, the, the, the reason that you've got certain players that dominate in, uh, in some leagues more than they would do in others. Now, you know, Andre Russell you used as an example. I, I think Andre Russell, though, um, three years ago, maybe five years ago, may not be as flexible as what he is today. Against um, certain bowling and in certain conditions, you could question his uh, ability, his power hitting ability. Uh, but I think he's really evolved as a cricketer. I think, you know, because he's concentrated purely on T20 cricket, um, he has found a way to counter-punch those strategies against him. And, and most teams will want to put a fast bowler back on when a Russell comes to the crease or a, or a Pollard comes to the crease. But I think both of those examples have really developed their game to where they're, they're a threat against all sorts of bowling in all sorts of conditions. And at the end of the day, R Russell's hardly played in Australia uh, where you're going to get the quickest and bounciest surfaces. So he can only perform where he's playing. And where he's playing at the moment, he's owning it. He's dominating. Mm -hmm. can, yeah, can I just, trophies, go ahead. Go ahead, Freddie. Just add one sure. point um, to, to all of this, really, which um, I've sort of touched on, we've all touched on through the show. And it, it's where international cricket sort of fits in to this from a standard perspective um, and and as I said I think a lot of people have traditionally put international cricket as the pinnacle uh, and I think the point that um, I'd like to get across is that that is not the case always in, in the, on the T20 circuit nowadays I think if you see some of the very best international sides play against one another I think we could say comfortably that that's Australia India West Indies and England in T20 West Indies when they're at full strength if those guys are playing against each other then it is T20 cricket of the very highest standard um, but you know international teams do not enjoy the same benefits that domestic sides do 
specifically with regards to recruitment. And, you know, Pakistan is a really good example. We spoke about how they produce a lot of good pace bowlers. Now, wouldn't Pakistan absolutely love to be able to sign four overseas batsmen to come and play for Pakistan and bolster their side in the T20 World Cup? It's an area of weakness for them. They don't produce as many power hitters. Now, that's exactly what domestic sides can do. You've got a hole. You go and buy someone to fill the hole. In Pakistan, at the international level, you're entirely at the mercy of your, of your domestic talent pool. Um, and as a result, I think that the the lower, so some of the smaller international nations, therefore, when we see maybe Sri Lanka play against New Zealand in a T20 international, that is not the pinnacle of T20 cricket. I think, you know, I, I would comfortably, I would constantly say that you'd see, you know, Chennai Super Kings or Mumbai Indians really challenge and probably beat those sides. And that's something that as cricket fans and cricket watchers, We've got to learn to become accustomed to. And as the game develops and evolves and we continue to take T20 increasingly seriously, I think understanding that domestic cricket in many in many T20 leagues is high is a higher standard than international cricket. That's a really important point, I think, for the future of the game and for, for people understanding the game moving forward. I don't want to prolong this because we've already gone maybe slightly over time, just, just on the PSL though, uh, from a coaching perspective and probably from a numbers perspective, if there is that weakness, there is that batting weakness. Tom, we saw a very, very good young player opening the batting in the under-19 tournament and having a really good PSL uh, in the, the just-concluded one, albeit abbreviated. Getting so many overseas batsmen to plug those holes, where does that leave time for Pakistan to develop, where do they develop the batting talent? Because they have to in yeah, look, the, down the road. Yeah, they've got to develop it. I think outside of that that franchise model, um, and the cream will always rise. So you you talk about a, a young talented player, he will be in someone's squad in the PSL. He may not be in the starting eleven, but for him to share a dressing room with a AB De Villiers or a or a Joss Butler, or a Quinton de Kock from South Africa, or whoever it might be, during a tournament is going to be a better learning experience than he'll ever, ever have. And that's, I think, the advantage of having these high-profile tournaments with high-profile players, is that you're not only learning uh, on the tools, so to speak, under pressure out in the middle, but you're learning... In, in a dressing room environment, in a training environment, and those young players, if they're smart and you've got the coaching system in place where you encourage that interaction, um, you are going to have those players playing on the main stage sooner rather than later, and that's the most important thing. But I think their domestic structure around that tournament is vital to their acceleration. They, I'm sure Pakistan have recognised that there is a, a slight sort of shallowing of the quality of the of the depth of their batting, and they're going about trying to improve that. You know, you could ask the question, what what is it? Is it the surfaces they're playing on? I haven't got the answers for this, but is it the surface they're playing on? Is it the the, the fact that there is a, a lack of quality uh, guidance and coaching around the, the the technical side of batsmanship that's been missing over recent years. Again, I haven't got the answer for that, but there's got to be a reason because Pakistan have had some very fine batsmen historically. Yes, so there's right. no reason why that won't be the same. We also got to recognise that sometimes uh, teams and nations go through cycles where suddenly you have a enormous amount of fast bowlers and you have very little batsmen or you have a lot of middle-order batsmen and no real pure opening batsmen. So you end up having one of your middle-order batsmen having to, you know, play the role as the opener. So, you know, there, there are cycles, but Pakistan want to make sure they don't have a cycle that lasts forever. <laughs> well, and just, just a very quick point on that. You know, I think one thing they've done... The PSL was obviously played in the UAE for the first couple of seasons where I think it wasn't particularly conducive to, to generating or to producing powerful hitters, big boundaries on slower, lower wickets. When the PSL moved to Pakistan, they've, they've purposefully made some, uh, brought the boundaries in um, and produced some flatter tracks. Now, quite whether that's the right thing to do, I, I don't know, but it's very similar, actually, interestingly, to what we did over here in England. Um, around 2015-2016, Andrew Strauss had, a, as the managing director, had a clear, uh, pres sort of prescribed to the to the groundsman to produce flatter tracks and smaller boundaries. And obviously, we've seen since then England producing a young, uh, fearless generation of batsmen. 
Um, and, you know, in, even in the most recent PSL, Haider Ali was, was a youngster who emerged. Um, that's who, the one that we're talking about, yeah. Clear, clearing the ropes with ease. And, and I think, you know, hopefully we'll see that that move back to Pakistan and a change in conditions can, can uh, breathe fresh life into their power hitting. Yeah, lots of... T- lots, uh... To, to, to delve on and to digest there. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for a very academic discussion. I have to say, I really enjoyed that. Uh, very good insight into it. We hope that our listeners have enjoyed. And Freddie, I'll come to you again. Where can this podcast be found? Just to remind uh, our uh, listeners. Yeah, well, if, you, if you follow us on Twitter at TPSE underscore podcast, um, we'll tweet out the various links. Um, but you can get us on all the normal platforms, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts. Um, and a number of others as well. So yeah, check us out on Twitter. Um, and, and, and yeah, if, you, if we haven't got your, your platform on there, then let us know and I can, I can try and sort that out for you. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you very much, Professor Wild. <laughs> Cheers, Bish. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Bish. Cheers, Bish.